From Welcome Villain Films, the studio that brought you the horror hit Malum, as well as Beaten to Death and Hunter Killer, comes their newest nightmare, Mind, Body, Spirit, now available on digital. Directed by Alex Haynes and Matthew Miranda, and produced by Dan Asma, Mind, Body, Spirit follows Anya, an aspiring yoga influencer, as she embarks on a ritual practice left behind by her estranged grandmother. What starts as a spiritual self-help guide quickly evolves into something much more sinister. As Anya becomes increasingly obsessed with the mysterious power of the practice, she unwittingly unleashes an otherworldly entity that begins to take control of her life and her videos. Now, Anya must race to unlock the truth before her descent into madness threatens to consume her mind, body, and spirit. During its festival tour, which stops at Chattanooga Film Festival and the Unnamed Footage Festival, Mind, Body, Spirit garnered praise from critics who call it a found footage version of Hereditary and a knockout found footage horror movie for the live stream era. Experience the first ever yoga-themed found footage horror film and don't miss the film viewers have called extremely frightening and upsetting. Available now on digital anywhere you rent or buy movies online, including Prime Video and Apple Plus. Don't touch that dial. You're tuned in to the Dread Podcast Network. You are now listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris, where the most influential voices in horror cinema will spill their guts to the renowned horror director, writer, and producer. Now, here's your host, Mick Garris. From Nice Guy Productions, world headquarters overlooking the glamorous San Fernando Valley, I'm Mick Garris, and this is Postmortem. Frankenstein's monster has had a long and storied career in books, in films, in graphic novels, in television. Frankly, everywhere stories are told. It all began in 1816, when an 18-year-old woman began writing the book that was to become Frankenstein, the modern Prometheus. Mary Wollstonecraft, her future husband Percy Shelley, and Lord Byron were sharing a house near Geneva when they decided to have a little contest to see who could write the best horror story. And thus was born what might well have been the first science fiction novel, and certainly an absolute classic tale of terror, that has proven influential for three centuries and is still going strong. Its premise of man playing God to create life continues to be a potent theme to this day, and has stimulated many creative minds to build monsters of their own. Because the book was written by a woman, it was actually published anonymously with no author credit at all when it first came out in 1818. It wasn't until the book was published in Paris in 1821 that it heralded the name of its young female author, Mary Shelley. The book is profound and its prose is compelling and muscular and limitlessly imaginative, particularly considering the tender age of its author. First adapted to film in 1910 by none other than Thomas Edison, Frankenstein has been adapted to film dozens, probably hundreds of times, most famously as the classic Universal Monster created in 1931. When we think of Frankenstein, we think of what makeup artist Jack Pierce did to Boris Karloff, the iconic monster that has stood the test of time, rather than the mad scientist who created it. Dr. Victor Frankenstein. But no matter, Mary Shelley's creation continues to fascinate and inspire new stories, most recently the excellent new film Birth Rebirth, which, like the novel, was created by women. Co-writer and director Laura Moss and producer Molly Elfman. Their modern Prometheus is indeed modern, and we'll talk about their influences and challenges in bringing a very new take of an old theme to the screen. This episode is sponsored by Saban Films and the Norwegian thriller, Good Boy. When a young student meets a millionaire heir on a dating app, they hit it off quickly, but there's only one problem. The millionaire lives with a man who dresses up like a dog. Watch Good Boy on demand and digital today. Good Boy. So, Laura and Molly, thank you so much for joining us on the slab here. Thank you so much for having us. We're very excited to dig into Frankenstein with you. Yeah, well, it's it's such a wonderful movie and such an original take. And when did you first, Laura, when did you first read Mary Shelley's book? 
I was 13, I think, uh, pretty young. Um, and, you know, the the novels I had read by women uh, up to that point uh, were tended to be about marriage and manners and petticoats and just weren't. <laughs> uh, so it was really meaningful to me that this like classic horror novel was written by a woman. And as you mentioned in your intro, a woman so young. Um, so I, I really connected to it personally. And I I have had the idea of a, of a female Victor Frankenstein in my head kind of ever since. Wow. Yeah. I've heard that you're a bit obsessive about Mary Shelley. <laughs> well, uh, I mean, I'm, I've definitely looked uh, into her work and her and her life um, and really put some thought into how her life circumstances uh, may have influenced Frankenstein and certainly influenced our film. You know, she suffered from many miscarriages, in fact, had a dream of, uh, about a miscarriage coming to life uh, the night before she wrote um, Frankenstein. Uh, she she dealt with a lot of grief in her life, and I think that's a major theme that comes out in our movie. And she was also the daughter of a really famous feminist author, like a really larger-than-life character who, you know, w- was casting a very large shadow, I think, over her life, which which is something that happens in our film with the with the absent mothers of the characters that we portray. Well, feminism, interesting, because it was in the early 19th century that this was taking place in the in the 18-teens. Mm-hmm. So that was a very bold stance to be able to take, considering the society at, at the time. Her parents, I mean, from what I recall, were quite radical. That I remember reading that they didn't eat sugar because of the slave trade, because they didn't want to participate in the slave trade. So, wow. yeah, some some conscious consumerism all the way back then. <laughs> now, Molly, you, you're you an actress, you're a writer, you're a producer, you're a director. As the producer of this film, how did the project come into your hands? Have you had a relationship with Laura before, or is this a new thing? Uh, no, Laura and I met, uh, was it 2016 or 2017? 2017. 2017, actually, on a project uh, that never ended up going with David Dasmalchen, uh, that we were both big fans of uh but david actually introduced us because uh he had written the script uh and i was brought on as a producer and at that time i was working for a company called fun size horror and so i was my whole thing was working with directors and giving them their first opportunity starting their careers so when he brought me the script i said i know so many directors and he said look i know this one person they might be perfect for the job and i was like look I know a lot of directors. And so I was I was a total like pain in the ass about the whole thing. But anyways, <laughs> he said, just meet them. And I said, okay, fine. So, well, I should probably preface this. Before I decided to meet them, I looked up Laura online and I looked up their film uh, and I found Friday. And I... Which is two words, Fry and Day. F-R-Y. Um, it, it was a slogan kind of chanted at the uh, pre-execution party of Ted Bundy. And this short film takes place on the eve of Bundy's execution. Mm. So this was the this was the short I had going at the time. Yeah. And I saw the short and I was like, damn it, they're good. It was understanding the balance of tone of how to see a lead female character in danger, but not to exploit them, to understand that we wanted to talk about vulnerability, but not hurt the women that are in the film. And so I think that that was something that I had seen very few people accomplish to to that level. And so I was like, okay, I was, you know, still pretty, you know, sassy. Oh, oh, me, (laughs) Laura Moss. And I think we had an hour long phone call and then basically became family after that uh and when we were putting this film together in kansas it fell apart very sadly and uh we both looked at each other and we're like what now and it's six years later here it is only, only six short years later six we should be yeah exactly well tell me the the challenges of bringing this to the screen it's a very unique point of view it's an independent film and it could only have been made by committed women and uh, you know, it it really, it's about parenthood. It's about life and death, the most queasy kind of life and death to, to face that of an infant child. Mm-hmm. And the female perspective is such a critical core of what this movie is about. And that's not to say that it doesn't have appeal to everyone. I think it's a fantastic film and really original and so beautifully made. But 
it had to have been challenging just from the very get-go, particularly when you're talking about bringing a dead infant back to life. I mean, the subject matter is challenging. As, as you can imagine, this isn't the easiest pitch in the world. Um, we we went through that process together um, and, and the movie did come together and fall apart many times like they tend to do. Um, and then uh, we were lucky enough to be selected for the 2020 Sundance Screenwriters Lab. Um, uh -huh. I think that was a real milestone for the film. We were able to meet with folks at Shudder um, who really championed us from the beginning. And then, uh, and then we were greenlit and all ready to go in the early spring of 2020. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. and then- Not a great time to shoot in a hospital, it turns out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it was, I mean, it's been, it's been a long road and I'm a big believer that films kind of come into the world when it's the right time for them to. So as much as, when I first met Laura, they actually had pitched me another project, which I read and I said, this is great. We will not have the budget to do that. And then uh, they pitched me, I think half of Birth Rebirth was written at the time. Just birth. Just birth. <laughs> Just the birth part. <laughs> we hadn't rebirthed yet. Uh, and so I... I was like, this is the right project. This is the right one. But it, it, I just want to speak to like, it was a very long path. And we, because we got shut down in May of 2020, we went back to the script. We talked about the story because we had to pitch this because of Sundance Labs. There was so many, there's so many conversations that went into how we were going to go about hiring, the importance of how we hired, what, how we would create a, an atmosphere on set that would allow for the actors to be able to do what they were going to do. And I think that, we both evolved considerably in that time. And I'm actually very grateful that we made it post COVID um, because I think that before that, it was kind of an atmosphere of get it done no matter what. And mm -hmm. there was an iteration of that we were making with a, another financier at another time and it was much lower budget and it was get it done no matter what. And we both ended up walking away from that situation um, and moving on post shutter, you know, everything kind of fell apart anyways. And That's a hard thing to do is to to be willing and and it's not calling somebody's bluff. You mm. know, you have to actually be willing to walk. And that's very bold. It's very scary when you're starting out because you really are just grateful that someone raised their hand and agreed to finance your movie. Um, and, you know, I always talk about directing in terms of, you know, I think that the main skill is to know when to compromise and when not to compromise, because you basically have to do both every day, multiple times a day. Yeah. Um, and so that was, it was really, I mean, to, to have Molly as a partner so that, that, you know, I'm not doing this on my own. We're consulting with each other and checking in with each other and going, no, this is the right thing to do to protect the film. Um, but to your point, Molly, like, I felt like basically I'd been told I was on timeout and I had to go to my room for two years <laughs> to think about this movie. <laughs> and it did help. It, it, yeah. it does. And also the type of producer when I produce, I, I don't like to produce for a lot of people anymore. And honestly, I won't. Um, so Laura is one of the few people that I will produce for. And one of the reasons why is because I think we share the same reason that it's not just what we're making, but how we're making it. And I, I think that that is equally important to us now. And I, I'm understanding what Laura's wants and needs were before they before we ever got to day one of shooting, allowed me to create the right atmosphere that they didn't have to be needing a lot, that they weren't wondering, that they knew that the the decisions that were being made on the producerial side were to help what the creative needed. And so there was a shorthand that allowed us to move incredibly fast mm. and through posts, which I think is, I, I'm very grateful for all of that. Well, the relationship between producer and director is a very multifaceted one. And there are many definitions of what a producer is. Mm -hmm. So on a day-to-day -day basis, what was that relationship like? Was it, uh, did you line produce? Did you arrange the crew, Molly? Um, did you, were you really hands-on in the technical area or was it more a creative boost and a cheerleader and being able to make the vision come to the screen that Laura had? I mean, I don't think, it, it, I hear this term creative producer, and I think I kind of technically know what that means, but I don't, because in order to be a producer, you have to understand the, what the creative needs are and the monetary response for that. So you you don't get to ever just let go of the budget, but David Newhouse was our line producer and he was, you know, ran the actual budget, but I was able to communicate with him very directly about what the needs were. And for instance, when there's an issue of some kind, we can't get this prop. 
I have a pretty good idea before I even get there of we have to have this prop. So let's start figuring out the workaround or you know what, that actually, Laura's not gonna care that much about this. Let's find five other options and bring it so that we can go about it a different way. So I find the most beneficial is that normally I can show up with solutions that are actually going to matter mm. as, to, and so it is very nuts and bolts, but it's also being a cheerleader. It's also Laura being like, I don't know how we're gonna finish today. And being like, we're gonna finish today. <laughs> and, <laughs> Here's and, how. Yeah. yeah. Molly was on set every day and, you know, I took a cue from Molly actually and how she handled me in terms of how I worked with my actors, you know, which is to say that like, I, I, I had, you know, two of the best actors around as my leads and, you know, rather than get too involved and to over direct them, I really tried to be prepared always when they needed something from me and to give them the space to work, you know, and I really felt that from Molly that, you know, Molly was there every day, all the time, but, uh, you know, allowed me to do my thing and was there when I came to her with my hair on fire, basically. <laughs> so, it, trusting your creatives and your team to do their work, I think, allows everybody to succeed in the best way possible. And also, because Laura and I had had these conversations, it wasn't a traditional first-time director where you were, I was worried about Laura. Laura should have directed their first feature 10 years ago. Uh, is so prepared, was so methodical, is, has everything down to a T. Like it was the, the vision boards for this, the visuals because of your background as a production designer and special effects, this was so well thought out and prepared. It was, it was very easy to know how to best support and to be there on the day. And that was because we went into it like, I, I don't know a more prepared director. And so every, you know, films are made in prep and we went into that very strong. Well, I was going to ask, Laura, um, how did those years as a production designer feed your ability to direct your first film with confidence? Well, I mean, I think in so many ways, but the first one that comes to mind is that, you know, I think maybe more than some first time directors, more than most, I've been on lots of sets. Um, I've been on lots of sets watching directors work. Um, so that is that benefit is invaluable. I think that process was demystified for me that way. And I really understood like that films are made shot after shot and, you know, we can do it. <laughs> you know? right. so One at a that, time. Yeah. Yeah. That confidence was there, you know, just that I was going to be able to do this. Um, but also, you know, how to stretch a dollar, how to, you know, work with it, with a crew, how much as a designer, I appreciate knowing that we're not going to shoot in that fourth direction. So please don't spend your time dressing it. Um, yeah. You know, and also how to tell a story through um, design and, and through the use of space. We had Courtney and Hilary Andahar uh, were our production designers, co-production designers, and they were phenomenal. They're also writer directors. So I had a really symbiotic relationship with them where I was like it, the the layers of that apartment were really important to me knowing that 80% of the film takes place in that apartment and not wanting it to get old and boring and to make sure those those angles felt unique each time. That was a collaboration with the designers and of course, uh, Chananan, our DP. But I do think the onset practical experience is really invaluable. Yeah, I mean, uh, tell me the process of assembling this crew, the, the group of creatives, the department heads that you work with, because, it, and where did it shoot? We shot in New Jersey. So this is set in the Bronx uh, for, for tax credit purposes. We shot in Northern uh, New Jersey and did one day of second unit in the Bronx. Um, we, yeah, our crew, well, so Chananan Chotrung Roj is our DP. She was, uh, she and I went to film school together, uh, but she she had since gone on to shoot many wonderful features. And so- And I where did you go to film school? Uh, NYU, NYU grad okay. school. Um, but she had shot many features since film school and so I was really a fan of her work as well as a, a former classmate um so we brought her on fairly fairly quickly yeah um, Ariel Marks is our composer and she composed my first short uh and we've been working together for seven years so we've been talking about this film for four years uh and that that was an amazing process yeah we had to shoot this incredibly fast and then the turnaround for Sundance was incredibly fast so uh, the relationship that Laura and Ariel had, I think, was a big reason of why we were able to do that in an amazing post team. I think it was it was a mishmash. It was 
Uh, some interviews. Some interviews. Yeah. The Andahars, uh, the production production designers that we spoke about, uh, I have been dying to work with for a very long time. They're also directors now, so they don't design all the time. Uh, and they had just worked with uh, my producing partner, David Visti, on another film. So he called up the Andahar twins. Was that The Wind? That was another horror movie, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then it was, and then I'm trying to think, oh, Lisa Forrest was a find. Lisa Forrest was our, our prosthetic makeup artist, special effects designer. And yeah. she was, she's a New York based, uh, artist and she's unbelievable. I mean, she's, they just, are top right. shelf effects. The, yeah. the practical yeah. effects are really amazing and she's, she's amazing. organic. She yeah. worked really well with our medical advisor, Emily Ryan, who is not in the business. She is a pathologist at Stanford, specializing in gynecological pathology. And uh -huh. she thought it would be a hoot to take two months off and play with us. So grateful for her. Um, and then Taylor Mason is our editor. And I had, she, had, she had done a little bit of feature work, I believe, but mostly television. She had won an Emmy that year for Black Lady Sketch Show. And she had also edited several episodes of Dahmer. And when we talked oh, about that, a combination. I was like, well, Black Lady Sketch Show meets Jeffrey Dahmer is kind of <laughs> hard. Uh, and she was able really to balance the like suspense and tension and the humor um, of the film and work at a lightning pace. I mean, we wrapped September 28th of last year and we were playing, our, our premiere was January 18th with every conceivable wow. holiday in between. So, you know, it was yeah. really a race in post. We had a cut, I think, 10 days after for Sundance, after we made the movie. So that was an assembly. An assembly. Yeah, but that's, <laughs> what we, that's what we got in on. So that worked. A rough cut, yeah. Um, that was one of our early, but it's, it was it was all of us pulling together, and again, David Newhouse uh, found a bunch of our crew, our line producer out there, David Viss. It was it was all of us pulling together. The post team, uh, Brian Parker, who came on for our sound design, uh, who is just one of my favorite people to work with in the entire world. He was our sound supervisor. Yeah. Our sound designer was my brother Doug Moss, uh, yeah. who's done all my shorts, but also does a lot of post uh, post production work in New York. Yeah. So it was a little bit of a family affair. Yeah um who's available who wants to come out and play we yeah. have no money, we have no money. <laughs> well until you started getting into post-production it sounded like all of your production uh department heads are female was it important to you that that is the case or it just happened to be they were the best people for the job well um i shout out to joe origlieri our sound mixer who is not female um but actually <laughs> went to college with brendan o'brien my co-writer so so we've known joe just forever and went to college with females yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, has, he's met them. Female yeah. yeah. Um, so our female, female boom female second AC, female AD. Um, it was a not, it, it, yeah, a lot of uh, trans and non-binary folks, uh, or I shouldn't say a lot, but, but, but several, it was, I mean, it was important to us definitely to have, um, people whose perspectives, uh, were relevant to the perspectives of people on screen, you know, so this was also true just in terms of like race and ethnic background, uh, you know, it, it, it's, I don't know, I don't really think about it in terms of like the best person for the job versus the, the, the right demographic, because you don't have to make that choice. You know, there, there are so many great people for the job. Really, I think we tended to attract uh, folks that where, where this film was particularly resonant for them. So, you know, I know several of the actors have expressed to me just as sort of women's reproductive rights have come under attack, you know, they read this script and they felt like they this was the time that they needed to do it and dig into this kind of material. So, you know, as as Molly mentioned, we weren't the highest paying job in town. So the reason yeah. that we got the fantastic crew that we got was because the script personally resonated with them. And I don't think you have to be a woman at all for this script to resonate with you, as you say, as a parent and, and for other reasons. But, um, you yeah. know, I think that had something to do with it. Are you a parent, Laura? I'm not. And well, Molly? Uh, yes, I actually found out week two of production that I was pregnant. So uh, <laughs> Owen Wilde uh, was my birth during birth rebirth. Hopefully we don't have to rebirth him. I would really, <laughs> <laughs> really like to not have to do that. Yeah. But, uh, but so recent parent. Well, being a parent during the making of this movie must have expanded your perception and your your perspective as a producer and involvement did did you feed any of that experience to Laura in this regard? I didn't know she was pregnant. I didn't tell you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, or we two, yeah, honestly, I uh, 
I I didn't tell anybody. I think also if you've ever made an indie film, it's very hard. Um, yeah, I have. I, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I don't know if you, you remember this, but sometimes it's very long days. You're very tired, and that was kind yeah, of. I've heard of those. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, but uh, honestly, I uh, I wasn't sure. It was it was my first trimester for the entire making of the film, so I wasn't comfortable really telling anybody because you never know what's going to happen. Uh, there's there's so many different. Things. The number of miscarriages i've had a miscarriage before so I, I wasn't quite sure honestly i called my partner and i was like this isn't real and then it became very apparent <laughs> the the hardest day for me was uh, apparent good choice uh, <laughs> he flew out to to new york and we heard the heartbeat the same day that we shot the c-section scene oh wow um, and i was like i remember i showed up on set that day and it was the first day that it was really real for me and i i had i was like you know what i'm just gonna sit back a little bit today. I think this is, this is going to be a hard day for me. And then everything, like we had every issue on set that day. And I was like, okay, I'm going to sit in the room and I'm going to partake in the C-section and be like holding placentas all day. Okay, great, great, great. So that was, but, but I, no, I, I mean, honestly, I, I'm not sure how it's affected me. I'm going to have to figure that one out in therapy at a later date, but I will say <laughs> it spoke to me already as, as just a person who didn't know if they wanted to be a mother. I wasn't a person who was, that was my dream in life. In fact, my dream was to make sure that I helped bring ideas and thoughts into this world. And so how to transition that into becoming a parent is something that I'm still working on and figuring, you know, he's only a couple months old right now. So we're still figuring that out and mm -hmm. how that's going to inform the future projects that I make. But it's something that I'm very proud of as a filmmaker to have been a part of, because I feel like the subject matter in this film about what it means to be a parent is very important. And I'll be honest, I've kind of felt like a parent because I've been a producer for a long time. So I'm kind of used to the, you know, that type for of mentality. Your children, yes. It feels like it. <laughs> Laura, do you think it would have affected your perspective had you be, been a mother before making this movie? Oh, certainly. I mean, 100% it would have. Um, and I, it was important to me actually, I mean, to balance my perspective with the perspective of people who are parents. Um, our cinematographer is a mother. Um, Judy Reyes, I think, drew very much on her experience as a mother, uh, as an actor in this movie. Um, but I think it's not just the experience of being a physical parent, but also like encountering the limitations of your body around fertility was a big element of this movie. And so for me, I think it's just as someone who, you know, has a uterus, also wasn't sure what my plan was um, and was tr making this movie in my early thirties, I mean, sorry, late thirties and then turned 40 on this set. You know, I think that really, um, inf you know, affected my experience of this. I, I will say that the lack of support from our medical system and how horrible our, health our healthcare system has become very apparent to me during yes. being a child. And uh, the scene actually with Brita that's one of my favorite scenes. Uh, Brita's in the movie. She plays Emily yeah. and she's sitting there. She's pregnant and the husband and the doctor are speaking over her. And I remember seeing that shot and being like, it can't be that bad. And now going through it, it's absolutely, uh, it is actually that bad. And there's a line in the movie that I don't want to ruin, but always meant so much to me. And I definitely resonated with much more is how much we care about the baby and how little we care about the mothers. Right. And I have gone through that and experienced that. It is amazing how much you are cared for while you are pregnant. And the second the baby is out of you, it is all about the baby. And they do not care about the people who have brought that baby into the world. And that is a huge problem and something that I do think is addressed in the film. Well, this is really great that it is addressed in the film. Horror is such a great opportunity to use metaphor for social and political commentary without it feeling like social and political commentary. You're telling a story that has a point of view. So tell me how present was the idea of communicating ideas on top of a story, Laura? Well, you know, I I think, you know, this was a good lesson for me, this film, that, you know, I, I really don't want to make a film unless the the ideas in it are so complex that I can chew on them for six years, at least, <laughs> because of how long it takes to make a movie. You know, so I don't really think about this movie as one of messages. I mean, obviously our personal uh, points of view and maybe politics come through in this film, but it also, you know, is really about, I was wrestling with the idea of, you know, wanting to create something with my mind coming up against the limitations of my body, 
the social pressure to have a child and like infuse all of your legacy into that act. Um, these were all like big questions for me. Is there, what is the big difference between someone who identifies first and foremost as a mother and someone who first and foremost identifies as a creator um, of other things? And what are their similarities? So these were all questions that I'm not sure that I actually answered in making a movie, but I felt like we're, we're like interesting enough that, I don't know, that we could make a movie that other people would be interested in too. Yeah, it's not your job to answer the questions. Right. Posing them is certainly more than enough. Yeah. Now, that that brings to the four, um, the characters, the two lead characters are diametrically opposed emotionally. One of them is entirely lacking in emotion and sees an infant as an opportunity to experiment. And the other one sees it as an object of love. Tell me about those perspectives and how you how you separated them and how you communicated it to the excellent cast. Oh gosh, well, you know, this this originally, this idea did originally come to me as who is this female doc, Victor Frankenstein. And when I first started free writing about this film, it, it, it took the form of letters. And mm. maybe it's because uh, Frankenstein is an epistolary novel that really starts with letters, but it was letters from prison from this Victor Frankenstein woman to the mother of the child that she reanimated. So mm. in, in the world of this free write, which is not the world of this movie, she had been caught, she had been imprisoned, and then the mother had been saddled with her reanimated child that was no longer really her child. Um, and so that relationship started out as very adversarial. Um, and as we wrote drafts of this movie, that adversarial relationship, and it's something Molly pointed out very early in her, her earliest notes, you know, these women hate each other. <laughs> they did it. They mm -hmm. did early drafts. You know, they were really trapped together by this circumstance. And it, it was just less interesting to watch. You know, it was sort of like, I think it was really Molly that posed the question of like, what do these women have in common and what, how, you know, wouldn't they need each other? And they come at it from opposite directions. They do. They come at it from very opposite directions, but both of them over-identify with one element of their of their identity, you know, mother, mad scientist, uh, you know, uh, they over-identify with some element of themselves, I mean, really to their own downfall, to their own detriment. And so they they actually do have a lot in common, I think. And, and something I wanted to try to play with was the idea of really crossing them, really trying to open up Rose a little bit over the course of the film, have her actually develop a little more empathy, maybe a glimmer more of emotional intelligence, and really hard and sealy. One of the most interesting questions to me of, of Frankenstein and many iterations of Frankenstein is sort of who who is the monster really? And there's a very obvious, you know, child monster in our movie, but I think you can make the argument that Rose also creates a monster in Seely um, because of her monstrous actions. Well, there's a lot of passion and compassion in the film, but there's also anger. Mm. I feel the fuel of anger. Can you explain where that comes from and how it expresses itself? Can you explain my anger? <laughs> <laughs> How much time do you get? No, <laughs> no, we're both pretty angry. We got a bit. <laughs> I mean, there's just, there's so much to be angry about. <laughs> I, I mean, in this world that we live in, in which underrepresented voices are just completely ignored. Well, at this society. time, the Supreme Court had just made the the Roe v. Wade decision to, to cast it aside yeah. and just set the world back a hundred years. Yeah. Uh, and so this is right as at the time you're making this movie that had to have an effect on you. Yeah. And I think before that decision, um, you know, I, I grew up angry at the fact of having a body. It's very limiting and and it falls apart and it's very upsetting. <laughs> so I think very angry that I can't just exercise control over it and it does whatever I want. And I think that's something that manifests in Rose. You know, she treats her body like a machine and then suddenly the machine breaks down and that's that's very irritating. Um, but, you know, I think that is true that, you know, we 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 did create this character that that does what she wants with her body uh, just for her own ends and her body betrays her, yeah. um, which I think ultimately will happen to all of us. Yeah. It definitely feels like it this morning. <laughs> 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 Creaky. Now, I, I mean, 
I don't think that this film was driven by anger or rage. I do feel- No, I don't think so, but it's certainly a reflection. It's one I, of the facets. Yeah. It's hard not to be angry when you're told that you are not able to uh, make decisions for yourself in one way or another. It's hard not to just be angry when you're told that you don't know what's best for you. It's hard, you know, it. It's hard on a daily basis not to feel enraged by that. I think I was saying when we had, we had drinks the other night and I was saying, uh, somebody asked me if I look at the film differently since I had a, a kid. And I don't know that I do, but uh, I said that I, I can watch this film and I'm absolutely fine. I can't read the news. Mm -hmm. The the things that are going on in our daily life are, are worse than almost any horror film that I've, <laughs> than you can imagine. And I think that that that's hard not to feel in the making. But again, that goes into who you choose to work with, who you choose to empower, making sure that the, the people that you are surrounding yourself are all people who want to make change. Because a film is made up with 50 million small decisions. And when you empower people who want to provoke change in the same way as you, there's a million little ways that you advance that conversation. And some of them are seen and some of them aren't. And I think that that's why it's so important of the people that we really chose to make this film with. Mm, yeah. That was, um, yeah, that was great. <laughs> 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 Molly, you come from a family of artists. Your father is the great uh, composer, Danny Elfman. Your uncle is Richard Elfman, a filmmaker. And how, what was it like for you to, to grow up in that world? Oh, you know, I always say, I don't know what it's like to not grow up in that world. <laughs> you know, that I can was, tell you that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that was, you, you know, I think the, I, I didn't really have that much of a desire to get into filmmaking. I actually got into filmmaking. I was a professional horseback riding trainer and one of my students was Missy Stabile, who was a line producer for Universal. And, she said, you'd make a good producer. And I was like, what's that? And <laughs> she, I, I worked for her and it was great because I used to work for her in the mornings. Uh, or, or sorry, I used to teach her horseback riding in the morning and then we would go to set. And I was actually, I got to work on The Ring 2 was my first film. Wow. And I got to work with Rick Baker for the first time and Aryan Tutin, who went on to do other special effects, but just had this amazing experience and, and got bit by the production, which was a bunch of people all focusing on the same goal. And when that works, it felt so good. Uh, in terms of the, I mean, it, it, I don't think my life was that crazy. Uh, you know, when my dad isn't being Danny Elfman, he's like, honestly, it was trying to get me to eat broccoli and I didn't want to. <laughs> I mean, it, it's, uh, I, I realized that there's extraordinary situations that I was, I was in, but it was all done in a very, kind of practical way and I think the thing that my father always instilled in me from a very young age is this business is impossible uh it is it is about hard work but it's also about luck I mean he said it in a million different interviews the only reason why he's made it is he's very good and he's worked very hard but he also got very lucky like I don't know how Danny Elfman becomes Danny Elfman today if he's starting out I don't know that peewee gets made today you know I don't right. know that, that, or yeah. gets given that budget or that amount of time in theaters. Like we were just, mm -hmm. it's very hard for indie films to succeed in the same way. So yeah. and I guess reality, your dad was a rock star before he was a composer, you know, with the Oingo Boingo, the mystic Knights of the Oingo Boingo, yes. who I went to see several times when <laughs> I was singing in a band at the same time. But, but, um, but he's Laura, just a dad. I mean, when I met him, he wouldn't stop showing me baby pictures of Molly. Ah, <laughs> the bear rug picture. We did, we did have a, you know, but then there was, you know, Uncle Billy, which was the shrunken head, and there was, you know, yes. skeletons. And I will say this: this is, I think, a huge part of why I got into horror. My dad used to have all these skeletons around the house, and like real skeletons and real shrunken heads and all the type. And then there was as one skeleton, would, yeah, as one does. And I was just, that was just normal for me, right? So I was never afraid of any of that stuff. All the stuff that I was told you're supposed to be afraid of, I wasn't afraid of. But there was this little skeleton above the door and it was just a, you know, fabricated skeleton. And he said that none of the other skeletons would play with him because he wasn't a real skeleton. So whenever I passed by him, I had to scream as loud as I could. So the other skeletons would think he was scary and then they'd play with him. <laughs> and so I was like, that made sense to me. So every single time I'd pass by the skeleton, I'd scream as loud as I could. The response to him is that people would see this little tiny girl 
walking into a room screaming and walking out and he thought it was hilarious but I do think like what I what I love is making sure that the person who doesn't feel like they fit in feels like they can belong mm. and maybe that's by screaming mm. yeah and that's also what monsters are all about I mean why we identify with Frankenstein's monster who is one of the few truly um empathetic creatures that we feel empathy for mm-hmm. um what about you, Laura? What was your background like as a kid? When did you first start to appreciate the outre? When did you first meet a shrunken head? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, yeah, thanks to your dad, <laughs> no, partially at least Beetlejuice. Um, oh yeah, but uh, no, I was I I was really really scared as a kid by horror, and I couldn't stop. So I would watch something scary, and then have a nightmare, and then go back and watch it again the next day. Um, <laughs> And I was one of four and my parents both worked full time. And so we just got to do whatever, you know, we we went to Kids Video and, and Blockbuster and just into the horror section and just kind of went wild. Wow, you were in the neighborhood of Kim's Video now. That's... Yeah, yeah, we were, I was, I'm a New Yorker. Um, but we, you know, for me, horror is always what adults won't talk about. You know, that's what I'll always think about it. When I was a kid, it was like exploring things that I knew were wrong, that, that adults were telling me were fine. Um, and so I just, I felt ultimately, you know, I got to the place where it was, it was not so, you know, this, I wasn't as scared. I wasn't having the nightmares all the time, but I was, it was cathartic. And so I was, I mean, so obsessed with horror that I traumatized my three little brothers because they didn't have an option. They, they had to watch and listen to and read whatever I told them to. <laughs> so. Well, it's interesting. There's a lot of talk now about, um, uh, uh, elevated horror, which I think is a very insulting term. Agreed. You know, let's just call it good horror. But horror can be as literate as any other genre, and even more so because, and I say this a, a lot on the show and in life, that good horror has to be good drama first. You know, you need good s- characters, you need a good storyline, you need a good plot. And it's harder to make a good horror movie than to make a good drama because you need all of those elements. And on top of that, tension building and suspense and transgressiveness. And I think transgressiveness is a really important part of this genre that we confront those things we're afraid of in a safe way. I mean, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, a thousand percent. Um, yeah, you know, I remember, you know, I think I took a horror class in high school, I took like a continuing education horror class. They have. And it's like Parsons. I don't know. It's it's cool. Oh, how times had changed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I remember being they present they presented um, Rosemary's Baby and The Exorcist as this example of sort of horror that reinf- the Exorcist as sort of horror that reinforces the status quo or like you know is not really critical of the church or the institution that it's portraying. And then Rosemary's Baby is something really deeply subversive mm-hmm. and. I do try to, I mean, I try not to be too didactic in my thinking and just experience horror films when I, when I watch them for the first time, but that is kind of my sorting category for horror. Yeah. What are the ones that have most affected and influenced you? What are your favorite horror films? Well, the early, one of my early ones, and I've I've talked about this before, is Henry Portrait of a Serial Killer. It was, scared the living shit out of me. I saw it way too young. Um, Yeah. And then, uh, We've, well, Den Ringers was a huge influence on this film. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. Sort of maybe obviously, but uh, I'm a yeah. huge Cronenberg fan. Um, all things Cronenberg. The Brood yeah. also mm-hmm. uh, very important to me. Um, Both of those movies fan. definitely are reflected in this. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm all over the place. What about you, Molly? I mean, you know me, I love a good ghost story. Yeah. So The Orphanage is probably still one um, of my favorite horror films beautiful. of all time of meaning and intention, that story. I mean, talk about drama. And the emotional depth of that movie is amazingly powerful. Yes. And and that's always good horror for me is when you can, and, and always the scariest horror for me is when I'm emotionally invested in the film. And then my first horror film that I saw when I was very young that I was obsessed with was Poltergeist, which I watched and rewatched. And the thing that I recently rewatched it, I think why I also loved it so much is because, and it ties back to this, which we had many conversations, is that there are moments of comedy 
of light. And without that light, you can't really see the dark. Mm-hmm. It just becomes like dark chocolate. And it's just, you, you need some whipped cream on there. But it, <laughs> it, I think that was, that was a really weird conversation that I remember that we had multiple times was the comedy pass on this script. About humor. I, there was a version of this that got, that was sort of all the beats that you see in the film, but was just kind of humorless. And I got to the point where I was like, I don't want to watch this, let alone make it. I need, I need <laughs> to find the the dry humor in it, you know, hopefully character-based, but I fully agree. And, you know, uh, speaking of great R movies, I just rewatched um, Dead Alive yesterday. And it's been oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, it's amazing. And after after making our film yeah. in 24 days, yeah. and that they shot that in like 11 weeks and just every, oh, anyway, I would. And Peter Jackson did alive. everything, you know, he built I mean, props, it's, he did but everything. But it's like so fun and they're having so much yeah. fun. And I think that that element of fun is something that I definitely want to bring into every everything going forward. Well, tell me about the transformations that the script took from the beginning to the end. You talk about how it has changed a lot and, and changed course and direction and then became what it became. Tell me that train of thought where where it took you yeah there were some elements that were always the same I mean it was always these women it was always this reanimated child and they were sort of always trapped and it always felt cyclical like you know always a pig oh no it wasn't always a pig sorry I remember that was and then yeah (laughs) we had to go to a pig yeah sorry um we so you know one of the things I think the humor was a big revelation for us and there's also sort of an element and and forgive me for those who haven't seen the film but there's an element of the beginning kind of recurring at the end um and that was sort of a later I mean I think you read several drafts before that happened and once that happened that sort of cracked open the movie you know I think thinking about this in terms of cycles like thematically there are so many circles and cycles in this movie that once we realized that Brendan and I realized that it sort of it it made the script that was the closest thing the script didn't change much after that yeah can you tell me a little about the casting process oh yeah well so you know Judy uh Reyes uh I've been obsessed with for a long time and 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 had in mind when we were writing this script uh I know that she's known primarily as Carla from Scrubs and and people know her for her uh, comedy chops, but I had seen her in a film in 2013 called Gun Hill Road, this this indie drama, and I, I knew she was just phenomenal um, and, and was going to be able to nail this. So I had her in mind from the beginning, but I didn't really want to, because because I really didn't have a second choice for Celie. <laughs> I didn't want to <laughs> go out to her until we were like, this is scheduled for this date. Like, this is very, very real. Yeah. Um, so it was really a question of Rose the whole time, you know, who are we going to cast in in that role? And Marin uh, has done everything, but I know her from a lot of her theater work in New York. Um, and I just know her as this really fearless actor. And Rose is very much like me. I mean, I that's how I feel. I hopefully I don't come across that way, but well, uh, I, fortunately I, not at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I feel very close to that character and and for that reason maybe had a less clear picture in my mind of of exactly what she was going to look like uh both physically and, and behaviorally um and so you know seeing Marin on stage it just clicked for me and when Shutter came on you know you, you get nervous as a director because of course the the production company the financier you know wants to know who you're casting and and wants casting approval and I was worried that, you know, I, I brought Marin to them and they immediately flipped out. I mean, in a positive way. They they had worked with her on a horror movie called The Dark and the Wicked uh, that Shudder also right. produced and they already loved her. So it was a, it was easy sell for, from that end. And then, you know, going to Marin, she she really just responds to material. You know, she'll she reads a lot. Um and maybe the other sideways benefit of COVID was she had a lot of time to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> but she came on in 2020. And so we've been talking, we were talking about the film for a few years before. Yeah. And then AJ, AJ Lister. Our little girl. She was six when we shot. Uh she was part of a nationwide casting search. Uh wow. so we auditioned her on Zoom. Yep. And I didn't meet her in person until a couple of days before filming. But I developed a pretty close relationship with her mother, Stephanie. Uh, cause as we all know, you're casting the parents when you're casting the kids. Um, yes. <laughs> and, uh, Stephanie, 
I would send videos to Stephanie of, you know, a dementia patient or a toddler learning to walk. And she would do exercises with AJ at home and film them. And that was kind of our rehearsal process was, you know, for weeks leading up to the shoot, kind of building a a movement vocabulary so that we could kind of hit the ground running when she actually landed. Yeah. Well, there is so much medical veracity in this movie. Tell me about the research that you did between the two of you. That's really important. Oh, boy. I mean, <laughs> I, I can't take credit for that. Well, I was trying to remember wh- where he wrote this, if it was on writing, but Stephen King, I remember, had a whole chapter paragraph about research and about like not getting not getting over involved with research and letting it yeah. kind of derail you. And um, Brendan and I you kind of knew enough to know that we didn't know anything. And so we read a couple articles. We read a couple books. Um, and then we wrote a draft of this movie, knowing that there were going to be wild medical inaccuracies. And our medical advisor, the Stanford medical advisor who I mentioned, was actually college roommates with Ariel, our composer. So ah. I sent this to Ariel. She said, you know, my friend Emily would probably really love to, you know, dig in. And I sent it to Emily, who's kind enough to read it. And I said, rip it apart. Uh, you know, please tell me everything that's wrong with it. And she did. But she also was very happened to be very story minded. And so she would say, you know, it, it wouldn't happen this way, but I know why you need it to happen that way. So here's something else that could confusably happen. So she was a real contributor to the writing process. Wow. Um, and she came on set and she was when she wasn't with me, she was with the production designers. She was with the actors. And so really brought a lot of medical realism to the film. What's your favorite part of the process? I mean, there's casting, there's pre-production, there's production design, there's sitting with your DP and planning things out, or is it production itself where you've got a thousand questions hammered at you every minute? Uh, And then post-production where you really fine tune what your movie is and what it becomes. I like being on set. Um, Yeah. It's crazy. Rather than writing. Oh, writing's the worst. Writing's the worst. (laughs) I, I love writing. I, it's yeah. so yeah. much fun. Um, who was it? Somebody, uh, I wish I could cite this person, said that uh, writing is pushing a boulder uphill and director directing is running down the hill with the boulder behind you. <laughs> oh, and- to me, directing is being hit by the boulder rolling over <laughs> you. <laughs> but it's so much less lonely. You know, when you're yes. like, of course, you know, Molly's been involved from the start. Brendan's been involved from the start. But when you get onto set, you realize that you're you're not, it's not solely your responsibility to solve this problem, that there's actually an amazing crew of people whose full-time job is the thing you made up. It's pretty awe-inspiring. And yeah, I I I that's my favorite part. What about you? I mean, it's a mixture. Like I said, that whole idea of when an entire group is all focused on the same thing, they're all individually working to make one reality come true that feels really good when it's going really well. <laughs> uh, when it's not, it's it's the worst thing in the world. But that that feeling of existing inside a tornado calmly mm. is probably my addiction. Mm. Um, but I will say my other favorite part is Foley because it's so <laughs> weird and I For love people it. people who don't know what Foley is, it is recreating the sounds that um, almost everything you hear in a movie has been added to in post-production because the mics aren't in the right position to hear a glass being set down or footsteps in gravel, things like that. So it's called Foley when you have Foley performers actually create those sounds right on mic so you can mix it at whatever level you want, just so the audience knows. Yes. And the use of like when to use breath, it's, it's the subtleties, it's it's the cherry, the cherry on top. I love the, like the last couple of weeks is actually my favorite. Like I love finishing the edit, which I know normally seems very stressful, but I actually really love that. And I love putting on the score and the sound and being there because you really get to finesse the thing. Mm-hmm. You're you're no longer trying to figure out what your monster is. You're trying to figure out what the hat is for the monster. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, it's, it's that, that's a fun stage, but Foley in particular, it, it's those tiny little details at the end because they make a huge difference yeah. and, and and the color correction and all of these things, you, you go from this thing that looks pretty good. And when you see it come out the other side of this post machine, mm. it, it when you hire the right people and when you work with the right team, mm. you have a real movie. 
And that's, I love that. It's yeah. like a weird car wash that it well, goes through. Loop group to me was hilarious. So loop group is, <laughs> you know, the sort of background yeah. chatter and, and little extras that, you know, professional voiceover actors do. And as, as an indie indie filmmaker, who's only made shorts prior to this, I've never gotten that experience. So so the day of Loop Group was hilarious. You know, I remember we remember saying, okay, this is background street noises in the Bronx. And they were like, yeah, get a big pillow over here. And I was like, <laughs> all right, well, maybe a little less New York. But it was it was really fun to uh to just watch them work. Yeah. And, and, and a great uh, a great loop group will do a lot of research. They'll have your medical terminology. The medical stuff was wild. They had these, yeah, they just were able to do these pass-throughs yeah. and I believe all it. the yeah. background in the hospital was very accurate. And it was uh, Laura had given me this long list. And I was like, I think they're going to be okay of medical terms <laughs> pre-brewed by Emily Ryan. Yeah. And we did submit those, but they were, they were on it. top of it. Yeah. And, and then to go back to Foley, the weird things that they use to make horror sounds sound horror mm. is just my favorite. Cause it's never what you think. And I love to guess, and I love sitting there and I love trying to ask like, what is it really? And that's like one of my favorite things to do. Well, the first thing I directed was a TV movie for disney mm -hmm. and doing all of the post-production on the disney lot and their foley stage oh. is second to none and some of the sound effects machines and devices they had dated back to the 30s so and cool. it was just magnificent but when i was a beginning director i hated editing because the choices were infinite mm -hmm. and now i love it and have for decades but it was so intimidating. You know, I really needed a good editor who I could work well with mm -hmm. and that I was lucky enough to find that, but, but I really found it intimidating and the like, as a first time feature director, what was, what was your response to that, Laura? Oh, at the, well, I think the breakneck pace of post <gasps> really saved my life because as, as we mentioned, we wrapped September 28th. The deadline for Sundance was October 1st. I said, <laughs> I don't know if we're going to make the deadline, guys. Um, and then they, they, they graciously, it was a month. They gave us October 30th. Okay. And so, but it was still not a lot of time. It's four weeks to cut a feature. No, and, that's nothing. You know, Taylor worked so fast. We did one test screening in New York, one test screening in LA when we had a rough cut. And it was sort of like, okay, incorporate this feedback and make some hard decisions. And I think if I had the time to second guess myself, if I had had more time, I don't think we would have ended up with a better film. I think we might've ended up with a muddier film. It was it was the adrenaline of set, which I love so much, was kind of in post during this process. Yeah. I, again, Pressure. Laura knew this film so clearly inside and out that we didn't go into it being like, cause sometimes you get out of it and you're like, what's it gonna be? That was never the case. Like the the clear vision for this film was always there. And and so it yes, that helped, but you knew what you needed it to be and what you wanted. And also I will say your partner, Brendan O'Brien, mm. who was there for the entire post and just having that, uh, I think, I guess moral core, mm -hmm. which he really, I think, <laughs> holds strong to, but yeah. he yeah. he won't let you go away from that, no matter what, <laughs> no matter true. how hard you try. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that that's really important in like in like reminding, uh, continue, Laura, this is what you wanted, Laura, this is what you were going for, Laura, yeah. and then and then going right back to it. And the rapport between the two of them is is incredible. We, and we the two of you wrote it together as well. We did. I mean, we we have a long history uh, because we we got we were married and then divorced and then we started really writing together. So we have a we have like a a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I sit between the two of them. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's. I think that, that you're right to be reminded of the thing that you might lose sight of as a director. You know, the thing that you've articulated to someone else, and then to make sure. And Brendan has done that during this process, and Molly has done that a lot during this process just re like reminded me and brought me back to something that that I originally intended. Do you shot list heavily or storyboard? Um, yes, both. Uh, you know, uh, Chananan is brilliant and just thinks visually. So uh, I remember when I sent her the script, uh, we did a we did a Zoom interview. I mean, really just to check if we knew each other already. And I said, you know, what, what do you think of the script? And she goes, I like it. And I said, oh, okay. Uh, you know, uh, well, you got the job. Uh, yeah, let's talk about, you know, and I and we talked a little bit, but it was a little short. 
And then two days later, she sent me a 148 page lookbook. Uh, it was astonishing. And it was basically the movie, you know, um, in chronological order. Um, so we had a Google document and we would actually just paste those reference images in. She did um, physically storyboard with me all effect sequences, all nudity sequences, just to make sure that that for Lisa and then for the actors that we were really clear on how we were going to film the sensitive scenes. Um, uh, but other than that, we didn't storyboard, but um, lots of shot listing. And we came in every day with a very detailed shot list. I'll find myself on the weekends, I'll shot list the whole week's work that's coming up. And I won't even look at it most days. And then at the end of the day, I'll say, I shot every one of these shots, or I did not shoot one of these shots. <laughs> it's the flexibility. The it's absolutely true. I had a River Enslin was my assistant on this film, and they were amazing. And they had an iPad with the shot list and the reference images. And it was always there for us. But I, you're, it's, uh, that was my experience too. You know, I, I wasn't looking at it every five minutes. It was just something that I knew I had in my pocket if my mind suddenly yeah. went blank. You know? yeah. Sometimes you can find yourself locked into pre-planned things that keeps you from discovering magic on the set. Totally, yeah, absolutely. Being spontaneous and open to change and, and input from whatever good source, whether it's craft services or your DP, <laughs> good ideas to be had. And- the job of the director is to know which are the good ones and which ones are not. Oh, and we have the best crew. I mean, there's one shot that's Trisha's shot, you know, our, our first AC. Whenever I see it, I go, that's Trisha suggested that shot. And we, the sequence wouldn't be the same without it. And mm -hmm. Jory's shot, our gaffer. Oh, and, yeah. it, and it's like, yeah, that's just them. Yes. Yeah. Just the movie is so much better for, yeah. for their input. And we didn't have a lot of time to work. Like it, this was the first time that Jory or Gaffer and Chan on the DP had ever worked together. They only knew each other for maybe a week beforehand. And I remember seeing day one kind of them just coming together so effortlessly. Mm -hmm. And I just remember taking a deep breath. I was like, oh, it's going to work. <laughs> uh, but, you know, having that amazing team, it it really is. We had great PAs. Like it is. And they cared. And, and they, they, they cared. actually read the script and they really cared. So yeah. that was that was heartwarming for me. It is everybody who makes this that possible. And especially when you don't have that many people, like mm -hmm. everybody has to give 110 yeah. percent. Which brings us to the finished film. <laughs> was the first time you saw it with an audience at Sundance? I had sat in on the LA version of the test screening. The rough cut the, screening. The rough cut screening with about 15 people. I wasn't going to sit through it. And it was Matt Miller who hosted that screening. Mm -hmm. And and our friend who's a producer, a filmmaker. And I wasn't going to even sit in it. And then, he, and then he said, you know, isn't it amazing to be able to sit in there and, you know, and hear the feedback and just sense the room? And I was like, oh, crap. I have to sit <laughs> in it. Um, and it was, uh, but no, the Sundance opening night, midnight film. I mean, midnight opening night uh, was our first screening. And so I tell me about that experience. Well, I didn't sit through it. I couldn't. Do no, it. <laughs> no, I couldn't. I, I tried so hard. Like right before I go outside, I see Laura hiding in the wings, and I'm like, You're, it, "It's gonna go." I give this whole pep talk, and they go, "Okay." And then I go inside, and I see them run out, and I'm like, "Well, you know, I did my best." Uh, <laughs> I saw it three days later in the theater. I, I sat through it, but I just, just that drop in your stomach. I've been to Sundance only as a production designer before. And I've been, I've been with films that, you know, were, had a rapturous opening and then it wasn't received as well as they thought. And I just, there were a lot of fears. My fear was that the the couple of VFX that we had cut in weren't going to be in the movie, but they were. And I was very happy about <laughs> <Yay>. that. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, I was waiting for those moments. I'm like, ah, we're good. We're good. Okay. So Laura, have you seen it with a paying audience? No, I haven't. I've seen it in festivals multiple times. So this, it's probably, I've seen it maybe six times now with an audience. Well, but, you're, yeah. you're on the East coast, but or here in LA, you know, it's, it's playing at the NoHo 7 right this minute. Yeah, so. you can go. <laughs> I think it's time. <laughs> I think it's time tomorrow night, Friday night. Well, it's funny. So Brendan, my writing partner, uh, saw it at the AMC 25 in Times Square the ah. other day, and he's like, "I saw it at, as it really was meant to be seen with folks that just came in from the Port Authority, wandering in and out with luggage and people <laughs> talking and looking at their phones." 
And he's like, really in theaters. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not sure I can take that experience just yet. You, you have to see it with an audience because that's what it's for. You're telling these people the story. And I encourage you to share the experience. Thank you. No, you're right. And and honestly, the festival experience, uh, getting to go to Overlook and Fantasia, particularly oh, yeah. the genre audience. Both of audiences, them are great. Both of them. Um, it's so cool because you really get just the best audiences who yes. really want to talk really deeply about the movie yeah well the genre audiences like to possess the films they love mm -hmm. they want to feel like they're participants and owners yes. and they care passionately more than any other genre yeah that's a pickup on every tiny little detail and you're like a little bit scared sometimes about the level of <laughs> like a level of attention that you get. <laughs> yeah. uh, I I love somebody came out of the screening that we had last week. Uh, and they were commenting on Rescue Birds and the details of that. And I was oh, like, yeah. wow, the, the children's TV show that's on the um, oops, the children's TV show that's on the on the screen that that kind of recurs. Oh yeah, 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 Rescue Birds. Um, we couldn't get the rights to Wonder Pets, which is a real kids TV show, so we had to. <laughs> they wanted nothing to do with no, us. No, so we had to write and animate and produce uh, a children's TV show in post on this. Movie. That was the hardest thing. That to was do. the hardest. That was the hardest. We were having to do it. We we were like done, and that was the thing that we were finishing like under the gun to make sure that there was a car. It's so funny the things that you end up doing at the last second. That yeah. was it was Rescue Birds. Yeah, but that had to have been fun. It was yeah. great. It was. Yeah. And by the way, if anybody would like, there's there's a lot more scripts that Brendan and Laura wrote. And we wrote an entire children's episode. Yeah. And my brother Greg, who is not my brother Doug, uh, who did our sound design, my brother Greg uh, wrote the Rescue Birds theme, which is really annoying. So yes, and we would love to make that. So if anybody wants to pay us for that, we'll yeah, I have the merchandising that. rights. So you know, that's how. Well, I was going to ask what's next. Now I know. <laughs> so um, what yeah. is next for the two of you well so the film that um i had pitched to molly originally um when we first kind of met was called gordon uh, is called gordon and it's a film that brendan and i wrote previously uh and it's it's set in detroit in 1989 and it's about this young man who uh is misdiagnosed as a sociopath and is trying to be a good guy in a world that is really sociopathic itself. Um, it's a comedy, uh, but it's quite bloody. So Molly got it immediately, but it's another kind of difficult pitch. Uh, and we're hoping to make it once this strike ends. Yeah, wouldn't that be great? We, we had just started trying to move on this and the strike started and it's uh, we're very eager for uh, terms to be agreed to and providers to be treated fairly so that we can go make films again, because that's what we Yeah, like. I know how yeah. you feel, believe me. <laughs> yes. Well, Laura and Molly, thank you so much for joining us. This was a great blast, and I encourage everybody to see the movie. It's original, it's thought-provoking, it's suspenseful, and just beautifully made, and I wish you all the best of luck with it. Thank, thank you, you, Meg. Thank you for having us. This was a wonderful chat. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Postmortem with Mick Garris. Download new episodes every Wednesday or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Postmortem with Mick Garris is produced by Mick Garris and Joe Russo. Our sound engineer is Christopher Leon Price. Our announcer is Jeff Gelb. Our graphic designer is John Holland. And our theme was composed and performed by Bill Burney with additional music by John Jasensky. If you're enjoying our show, please take a moment to rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening to the Dread Podcast Network.